Are you pregnant or a new mother steering parenthood? Pregnancy and birth of a baby is a life-changing event, an event that will make you happy, weepy, frustrated, joyous and exasperated all at once. Hi, welcome to my podcast Baby Ahoy. I'm your host, birth coach and expert Chitra Natarajan. I'm a birth enthusiast who loves drinking cups of chai, taking long walks in the woods and all things interiors in equal measure. I will be talking to an interviewee every other week to discuss birthing experiences, coping with the new role of being a parent and other valuable topics to navigate parenthood. This journey is bumpy but certainly blissful. Join me from wherever you are for a fun conversation. So I wanted to sort of ask and start with when did you and Giuliano decide to expand the family? Was there a moment where the both of you decided that this is the time or was it something that the both of you have been talking or was it a surprise? How was it? It was definitely a planned pregnancy for my eldest. I was 34, I think, when I got pregnant. So it had been on my mind for a while. We'd been together for a few years as a couple. Right. Right. And um we decided to get married. And so as soon as we were married, I wanted to go ahead and start trying for children and so did Giuliano. So yeah, that was it. Okay, perfect. It just happened quite organically. So the both of you decided that this is how it was going to be. I also I'm curious, how did you and Giuliano meet up? We met in the UK. Giuliano was studying for his PhD and I was working. and then he was towards the end of his studies there and he wanted another international experience so he was already planning in his mind to head to the netherlands okay um and we'd only been together for about 6 months but i wasn't really tied to very much in the uk at that moment and i wanted to start a masters degree anyway so for love and study i guess i came over the channel to the netherlands <laughs> and i'm still here over 10 years later with you i think that's what it is right everybody sort of thinks that oh i'm just going to be here for a year or two we'll figure this out and then this sort of this place sort of grows on you and then you decide to sort of stay put and it's also a nice place for you to be raising kids but we will talk about that so how has it been because you're from the uk and juliano from italy the system in terms of you know how the whole maternity setup is set up in the netherlands is very different from say back in the uk and also say in italy i think uk and the netherlands are somewhat similar but you know there are differences but then in italy it's completely different so how did you sort of navigate the whole system did you go to a, a neighborhood midwife or did you reach out to your gp what are the few things that you did yeah so it's quite funny actually because we first of all went to the doctor because that's what we thought we should do and we both sat down very serious and said i'm pregnant and the doctor said okay but you need to tell the midwife not me <laughs> you're not sick have you got any issues any health issues <laughs> and then we felt kind of sheepish and went away and made an appointment and there's within my health center where i live where the doctor is there's also the midwifery practice um which is linked to the fake house center the children's hospital right right um, so we the the natural thing then was to go there and i don't think that there were at that time any other midwifery practices in my neighborhood okay and okay. i was traveling for work so it had to be very convenient for me to be able to go there uh, in the morning and then get on the train and, and go to work right um so yeah that's that's probably why they made that choice 
And how was that for you in terms of the pregnancy journey per se? Because, you know, you were working and Juliana was also busy with his, with his PhD. And um, how was it for you in terms of, did you have like a, a mom's network, a group? How did you sort of navigate the whole pregnancy part of it, especially with uh, Sophia, your eldest? Initially, I mean, I was very fit with that pregnancy in the sense that it didn't really impact me. Uh, I wasn't feeling that nauseous. I was quite tired, but I was still traveling every day, an hour on the train to Leiden and, and doing research in the lab, walking around. Maybe wow. walking was actually very good for the yeah. pregnancy. And then uh, later on, obviously, it became a lot harder to the point where now, in, in well, in the second pregnancy, there's no way I would have put myself forwards for all of the work, the long hours, the late hours and the bending and, and moving things that sure. I was doing. I think with, with first pregnancy, we also sort of like get on with it, right? We don't really think too much about it. And then we sort of like do a lot of things. And and then there's also this sort of this awareness that sort of sets in saying that, oh, my God, my body is really tired. Yeah, I think if you're a fit, healthy person, uh, and I'm not saying that I was super sporty or anything, but, you know, I didn't have any particular complaints. My mobility has always been fine. So I think you don't, you feel kind of invincible up until that point because you've kind of been youthful, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and so you don't know, sort of expect this, uh, the impact that a pregnancy can have on your, on your body. Yeah. Uh, and many people are really totally fine up until the day before they, they give birth. It varies widely uh, how much you feel the physiological and the, and the weight effects of the pregnancy. But then I, I remember that later on, I reached out on Facebook to the Utrecht Mamas Facebook group and um, where else? I think my neighborhood Facebook group, maybe, because I didn't have friends who were starting families. Right. And I was alone abroad with my husband. But most of the people we knew were younger than us because I was starting, I started my PhD later than, um, say, most Dutch people would. So mm. I think I was 20... 31 when I started okay so yeah a lot of the people that we knew were sort of 25 26 and were not in that mode yet uh, right right to have babies what I was curious is that how is it with your well I wouldn't call their employers but you know you were at the university how was it with your mentor you know when you were doing your PhD and being pregnant and was it easy for you to be able to do both did you find it a bit more harder but did, did you see that you know people were a little bit more empathetic towards the situation that you were in or or you just had to get on with it well Is it very corporate like you had to just get on with it but at the same moment because the PhD is self-motivated project work I didn't really have any hard and fast deadlines that I had to meet except that I knew that I was running out of time to complete the research in the lab because then I would have a baby so right. the pressure was coming from the pregnancy in a way rather than directly from my supervisor and luckily the supervisors that I had so the assistant professor and the professor both had families of their own the professor has four children so he, he has a, uh, a wife who is a lawyer so he knows the deal and when I actually when I came back after maternity leave I had six months more research to do I sometimes would show up at like 11 o'clock in the morning because I really hadn't slept and obviously with a train journey from Utrecht yeah, to over there Leiden. an hour to Leiden so and nobody would say anything I think the judgment that I felt was probably more from the other students because they were younger and they had no idea right um, right interesting yeah 
in a highly competitive research institute, I think, you know, it would be seen negatively to prioritize family over your work because mm. that's kind of the, the work is everything type of a mm. thing. Mm. Uh, I don't know. But I was more um, for the last two years of my PhD was in a hospital research setting. So it was a bit bit more relaxed, I guess. Yes. Yes. You still had to sort of navigate that as well. Being a researcher plus becoming a mother. I certainly felt self-conscious about it because there wasn't anybody else in my situation. It was a big decision whether or not to do it during my PhD. But I did talk to quite a lot of people and they said, actually, no, it's the perfect moment to uh, do it now. Yeah. So I thought, well, uh, considering that um, the biological clock is ticking, it's what I want. There's never going to be a perfect moment. Just do it and you'll figure it out. I think the biggest mistake I made was going back to work after three months. Hmm. Why would you say that? Going back? Uh, after- it was just too early. I had a really hmm. difficult breastfeeding journey. Um, both of my kids were born with tongue tie and with the first we didn't manage to resolve it so the first few months were really messy in terms of the breastfeeding and the well we can go into the birth uh, as well but that was not so smooth so I was kind of still recovering I like then you know three months after giving birth you don't have that golden four month moment where the sleeping cycle starts to come into a, a pattern so working in those conditions is pretty it's pretty hard yeah. yeah yeah exactly and for you after those 12 weeks when you were actually transitioning back was it again full-time or was it something that you could actually go back say two or three days at work or um, um I worked four days back. a week okay. which was a lot because I had yeah the travel and the lab work and it's a lot of walking because the hospital is really big and I spent mm. a lot of time going to different facilities for different reasons so by the end of the day, you would be exhausted. I was then. completely pooped. And then I would come home and there would be a three-month-old baby yes, <laughs> that yes, I had to pick up from the daycare and then care for. So it was, yeah, it was an awful lot, to, I think, in retrospect. Although, honestly, I feel like with the second, I feel my age. <laughs> so I think I had a little bit more energy when I was 30, 34, 35. I can't remember exactly how old I was when she was born. But yeah. Right. And you and I met up, I think we sort of briefly interacted when you were pregnant with the first one, but then you and I met up only with the second pregnancy. So I wanted to sort of, you know, understand why this time you wanted to sort of have a sort of a different sort of an experience. So that's why you signed up for the hypnobirthing course. And we sort of worked through everything. And um, so, yeah, I'm going to sort of let you talk about that. Yeah, feel free to share. Yeah, so with the first pregnancy, I'd heard about hypnobirthing because actually a colleague of mine in the lab um she'd had this hypnobirthing course in Singapore and she thought it was really great but I was remember looking at her like what are you talking about (laughs) Um, and I really believed that you know this baby is just going to come out in some shape or form whatever it it, you know I have to give birth ultimately biology will do its thing so I wasn't really aware of all the routes that birth can take what happened in the end is with my eldest my water's broke Mm -hmm. uh 39 and a half weeks or so probably from all that walking around in the lab yeah you were you were really busy and very active until the very end yeah and then nothing happened so to speak so there was no it was just a small amount of uh fluid that came out and uh it was definitely my water's breaking we went to the midwife and checked but i didn't have any um any contractions Hmm. and so 
it was a very tense 24 hours or so and they said if you don't have any contractions then we recommend that you're induced and this was all through the university hospital uh, really because it's the children's hospital so they're very yeah. protocol driven so at being the first birth and being kind of scared because i knew that there was the possibility of an infection now that my waters had broken i just listened to them kind of you went with what they were giving I went you. along with it because I didn't know anything else. Having not done a hypnobirthing course or any other, I did like a two-hour preparatory course or something about pushing mostly. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, so anyway, we went to the hospital and started the induction process. And it took quite a long time to give birth. I think it started with the hormones to induce the delivery at seven or eight o'clock in the morning and then uh, i gave birth at like three o'clock in the morning so the next day okay yeah the next day yeah okay but it was not smooth and it was really painful and at a certain point i had um an epidural right i've never been so happy to see a doctor come into the room in my life <laughs> um, give me something yes and luckily my husband was quite strong on that and he said to me at a certain point because he could see I was kind of confused because I was having a lot of pain with the contractions he said look you need to get an epidural just do it and I was so glad that I did because mm. it gave me a bit of a break and then um, later on they could taper the epidural and induce the pushing phase and uh, there was no real problem I think I it was sort of half an hour the last phase so that's really nothing you know it can be a lot longer than that and I didn't, I just had one or two stitches, I think. It wasn't super dramatic. But I know now after my second that I can recover much more quickly because with Mia, who's three now, I had a much shorter recovery period where I, you know, I could bounce back and have my energy back. Um, hmm. Because I had a natural birth following the, the hypnobirthing course. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if I've answered your question now. No, you have, you have. No, I just wanted to sort of like understand, you know, what went on with the first pregnancy. And that's probably why you also wanted to prepare yourself a bit better for the second time around. I think that's the, you know, when you and I started yeah. interacting, I think you, that was the one thing that you told me that, you know, already given birth first time, but it was medicalized and it was induced with an epidural. So I want to have a different sort of an experience and I wanted to prepare myself a bit better. I also know that you wanted to have a water birth and in the end yeah. you did have a water birth. Yeah. Can you sort of like share what went on that day when Mia was born? Oh man, but Mia was 10 days overdue. So right, 40, yeah. Yes, 41 plus three. Yeah. So yeah. I was super ready to give birth by the time the contractions started and I had a couple of false alarms. I'd had these Braxton Hicks contractions so I'd go to bed and feel contractions and then in the morning wake up and think damn no baby you know, <laughs> after a week <laughs> I was ready for it and um it happened a couple of times so the third time or so that this happened I wasn't really sure but then the contractions continued all night and it wasn't really um painful like that I couldn't manage it it was more like a pinching so I was trying to uh, measure my contractions my own mom my husband's snoring next to me I was like oh. <laughs> um, and I I fell asleep at some point for an hour and then woke up again so I don't know how that works but I started uh, measuring contractions 
And then in the morning, I was like nudging my husband with my elbow going, look, it's seven o'clock. This is on. Something's happening. They're really close to each other. So I got up and almost immediately then it was like probably, I don't know myself exactly, but the second part of the labor really. So kind of strong contractions close together where I was pacing around searching for furniture to lean on and that kind of, you know, okay. classic okay. stuff. Yes, yes. But tell me one thing. Um, what did you do with Sophia? So was she somebody was taking care of her when you and Giuliano went to the birthing center? Or do you Luckily, my in-laws uh, were already staying with us, so they took her to my brother and sister-in-law's house. They also live in Utrecht. Okay. So as soon as they saw it was getting serious, they took her away so that I could breathe and concentrate. Yeah, you could sort of concentrate on what's going on with yeah. you. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is something that we always say as well. You know when this is the second or the third birth, say, for example, then mothers are usually just sort of focused on what's going on in the house and what's happening with the other kids. Whereas when the kids are sort of taken care of and everything else is being taken care of, then the mother and the partner can sort of like focus on what's going on in that moment, being extremely mindful about what's going on around, you know, around the birth. There's a strong psychological element to how it progresses because I noticed that whenever there was a change of scenario, uh, like the change from being in the house to be because the, the midwife took us in her car to being at the hospital then the contractions would subside a little bit I mean not entirely and uh, so you could really see that your body is kind of looking for its cave by that point and it wants you just to be at peace somewhere to finish the birth right so yeah we called the the midwife but unfortunately because I had the midwife from the um the hospital, the Baker said, so the Wilhelmina Kinderzika house, she couldn't attend to the birth itself at my house because they don't do it as a practice. So uh, I'd or organized for another midwife from Houghton, so nearby, to come instead. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know the midwife. And she only stayed for about 15 minutes and then she had to change shifts with somebody oh, else. Okay. <laughs> had someone else. But anyway, uh, that person took us to the hospital okay because my husband doesn't drive and I was in no state to drive yeah yeah so no you definitely um, needed somebody to sort of you know yeah take you to the hospital but did you at that point consider home birth at all did you for a moment sort of said that I'm not going to be bothered going into the hospital it crossed my mind but I just thought that I'd heard so many stories where I think it's 50% of home births end up in hospital anyway so I don't really need that distraction or that event in the middle sure. of the labour. I'd rather just go there. Sure. I also sure. knew that birth was quite messy and wasn't really sure that I wanted it in my house. Sure, sure. You just wanted to sort of go somewhere else, give birth and then come back Probably. with the baby. Yeah. Perfect. I mean, you know, I mean, every we all have our choices to make, right? Sometimes, you know, you feel better about being in the hospital or certain things to be taken care of so that you can be somewhere else. And yeah, that's probably what happened it, with you as well. Yeah, It's also cultural from UK and Italy that you give birth in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And um, so at, right at the beginning, before my first was born, the idea of home birth seemed really far out. But actually... Because so the, the the birth with Mia, the second, progressed quite quickly. So I started really like I needed to go to hospital and I was only uh, I left around nine o'clock, got there, I don't know, t- nine thirty and then gave birth at eleven. So it was very quick. So I yeah. think 
if I were to have another child, then I would probably be ready to give birth at home and not really be that worried about it because I've oh. given birth twice twice now. And um, and you know what it's happened. It's not been like I've had massive bleeding or any issues. Oh. Sure. Um, so it um, now seems way more normal and may, way more um, like something that I could do. You yeah, know? absolutely. And how did the hypnobirthing sort of help you and, and Giuliano? Because... You know, I remember that when you were preparing and you, you were certainly definitely open-minded, but you also were worried about another induction and not wanting another induction. And, you yeah. know, yeah. So how did that help you? How did the techniques help you? Well, it definitely helped me to just wait out the overdue pregnancy because I went past the due date by 10 days. 10 days. <laughs> um, and I was prepared to wait two weeks because I knew that, that was healthy and fine as long as they were checking the baby was okay I wasn't going to let them push me because I think at 41 weeks you I think I'd scheduled the induction because they you have to do it at 42 weeks if I'm not wrong or like they well, strongly yeah, well, they recommend it. it by 42 weeks and one or two days you have to give birth so if you don't give birth by 42nd week then they might say, okay, come into the hospital. We probably need to sort of like, you know. I think we'd already got a date. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and luckily I went into labor spontaneously. Good. Right. What about that patience part of it, right? Because you're patiently waiting when you are big, you're uncomfortable and you're waiting for something to happen. I tried and- everything. I tried, uh, you know, the, what's this dish with aubergine that they say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eggplant um, one. Yeah. <laughs> and um, walking. So we even, there are photos of me at Castile de Har, so doing some tourism uh, like three days. So I was <laughs> 41 weeks pregnant. I was just ready to to squeeze that baby out. <laughs> yeah, right. See, that's what it is, right? You're basically just anticipating. You're waiting for something to happen. And it was and extremely, uh, extremely hot. Um, oh, it was that time when there was a real heat wave in the Netherlands. And I remember checking the weather every day and almost crying because our house was way too hot. So I couldn't sleep. <laughs> I was sleeping with two fans on me in bed. Right. Nine months pregnant. My God. I mean, all these houses have been built in a way that they just trap the heat and there's just no ventilation. And I feel oh, like... bedrooms you know, in the oh, roof space. It's suffocating, yeah. Uh, well, it was in the old house. And uh, also, I got loads of water retention, even though I was drinking. I never wanted to see a glass of water again, I'll be honest. I was drinking constantly um, <laughs> and also retaining a lot of water. And my foot yeah. started to hurt. So in the last days before the birth, I could barely walk. So it was enormous. And I was hobbling around like an old lady. And I could only really go from the kitchen to the couch. And that's about it. That's your mobility. That's your space. (laughs) And how is it with with Sophia? Because Sophia was, what, three and a half at the time? Did she understand that she was going to have a sibling? Did you and Juliano sort of like have conversations around having another baby in the family? How is it for her? We tried to prepare her for it, but we definitely saw that her behavior changed when the belly got quite big and she mm. was more clingy and demanding because she obviously knew that competition was coming, I think, somehow, somewhere deep down. Right. Um, interesting, yeah. I think at the age, she was around three when Mia was born. That's quite a difficult age because she's no longer a baby, so she didn't really accept things like spontaneously happening around her 
thought. Which is not an older child who can like make a logical thought process yeah. about yeah. it either. So she, uh, well, she didn't really sympathize with my situation because she's three. So I still had to stand like 20 minutes pushing her on the swing sometimes. Be like, mommy really needs to sit down now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, um, I can understand. Yeah, yeah. And wanting to be carried and, uh, and things like that. And then when Mia was born, she really didn't appreciate the breastfeeding. I think she thought something terrible was happening to me. Not sure. Okay. The baby was biting me or I don't know what she thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mommy, yeah. no! <laughs> <laughs> and um, you went into the hospital and it was a very quick birth and, and then you had Mia in the water. Can you sort of, you know, share that experience as well? Yeah, so at the St. Antonius in Lyserine, they have very nice water baths, which I, I was lucky. This time you went to a different hospital. And I, not was, yeah, well, I was supposed to even go to the Diaconessa house, but that was yes. full when I went into labour. So they also have baths, but I think not necessarily enough. So it's a bit of a lottery whether you will get one or not. There are only four rooms so it, yeah. Hoping to go there because it's near my house and they had the water baths. But then in the end, I had to go to uh, Leiterang, which is about 20 minutes away, that the midwife missed the junction on the highway oh that we needed because there's new road layouts. And I was telling her, mm, it's really funny, I can feel it pushing on my butt. And apparently Giuliano saw in her face, like the eyebrows raised. Okay. <laughs> I guess that 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 in the car. <laughs> yeah, she, was, she was quite young and quite worried that I was going to give birth in her car. We uh, got there and they filled the bath immediately and uh, it was a room where you could dim the lights, which is perfect. perfect. And then they said, okay, we're going to leave you. We'll come back in half an hour. And they just closed the door and I said, oh, my God, I'm going to push. Get them back. <laughs> right. So, um, in terms of finding the time to bring myself into a Zen moment in the water, that didn't really happen. Mm. But I think just knowing that it was there and there was warm water and, and I could be in it made me like that where you can't control how the birth happens exactly. If you have this kind of tools that you can apply from hypnobirthing in whatever is happening. So if you've got long contractions that you want to relax into, you can use the kind of meditation approach and you can know that water is a tool that you can use. And if it's kind of just there for you, like I said, psychologically, it's all really important, that feeling yeah. safety net. Yeah. And uh, yeah, then, so after I'd been in the water for about probably 10 minutes, I'd already given birth basically. Wow. Two pushes. If you... If you see the record, because they print out all the different stages in a kind of uh, dossier thing that you take, yeah. doctor, it's like one minute here, 30 seconds there. <laughs> I literally, literally popped out a baby. I was really, I was so surprised that they put her in my hands and what I said, which is ridiculous, I went, oh, a baby. That's <laughs> what's going to happen. <laughs> but it was literally a surprise because I'd not had that pushing phase like that with the elder yeah 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 what I found was that with a natural birth at least in my case the body just kind of empties itself at a certain point you don't really need to do anything and then the baby appears so that's the way to do it right yeah. 
perfect yeah. perfect yeah 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 that's true that's true and how is it with breastfeeding for Mia as well and I know that you know I remember the whole story with the tongue tie and that's when you also told me about Sophia's tongue tie issue as well and how long did you sort of breastfeed Mia this time and also how did you transition back this time with uh, with work so how is it the second time around well this time I took um, five months off work instead of three it's always tough for me because I'm in these professional roles which kind of expect that you come back and, you know, work I like you're not. I want to talk a little bit more about that. I definitely want to come but, back and um, talk a little bit more about that. But, yeah. It's also coming partly from my own ideas about what people think. You know, maybe it's not mm. quite accurate, particularly here in the Netherlands. There's quite a tolerance for the maternity period. So... The breastfeeding with Mia uh, seemed to work in the hospital and I was like, oh, this is excellent because I really wasn't expecting it because I'd had such difficulty. The first mm, four hours or so with Sophia after she was born, so this is with the older one, I was just kind of failing to breastfeed, but I was on my own because I'd had to stay in hospital after the induction. My husband had had to go home on the bus. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> and um anyway uh i just had this crying baby and it was not fun because i couldn't as a new mum i didn't know what to do or what was going right or what was going sure. wrong so when mia latched and seemed to be feeding i was really really amazed and happy but then it became clear that there was something also not quite right with her latch and I kept asking, but does she have tongue tie? And I think I had five different people. So like in the hospital and then probably the Kramsor, so the doula, and then probably there's a midwife that comes out to you, right? When you yeah, yeah, the birth, checks, yeah. Someone else and then um, a lactation consultant. And there's a La Leche uh, League trained mm. lactation consultant. And she agreed with me that my baby did have tongue tie because I recognized the issues mm. from Sophia. So although it was going a bit better, I still had really sore nipples and she didn't seem very happy. I can't remember if she was just sucking and then falling asleep. Mm. But you remember, was it an anterior tongue tie or was it something that, you know, was it or did you sort of hear like this clicking sound or? Yeah, she couldn't get a, a good deep latch basically mm. Mm. and you don't I didn't hear it was more yeah it wasn't a strong clicking sound it was not an anterior tongue tie it was the regular one at the front mm. uh, the frenulum right the one. Lip. anyway the one under the tongue yes the same as for Sophia which is why I kept pushing but now when I meet young uh, well new mums with small babies that are struggling to breastfeed I tell them, like, keep asking different people. Don't listen to just the first person that you talk yeah. to because you you can't be sure if they're an expert on that on that particular topic or not. Yeah. And tongue tie can be quite hard to identify, particularly if it's an anterior one. So I would say unless you're one of the few lucky people whose breastfeeding goes super smooth at the beginning, just get the lactation consultant out directly. Yeah. Normally it's covered by your insurance. Yeah for two sessions and it can be such a lifesaver for you and the baby like psychologically you feel okay somebody's helping me and it's not me and there are things I can do and there are quite a lot of things that you can do 
and the baby may then suddenly start latching and start feeding and it'll be so relieving um, well absolutely because you feel I, this massive responsibility and also like i should just be able to do this it's my body why is it not doing what it should do and, yeah um, completely because you're very emotional right at the oh, time sure. because, yeah and it's you, all going to happen in yeah. the middle of the baby blues period so the when your hormones are doing um like a seesaw yeah yeah it's the ups and downs that you've yeah. seen that there is a huge up and then there is a sudden down and then the ebb and flow of what you're feeling is so strong and intense that you can't think very logically as much as you want to you're emotionally sort of tied to this baby because of the prolactin that you produce and to a point where you're thinking why am i not doing it and it's very interesting when you sort of said that you know i was failing to breastfeed we also sort of take it upon ourselves to sort of feel that i am not doing something and i had a very very similar experience with my daughter and mm-hmm. um, it was more about having the understanding the connection and doing skin to skin and putting her on the breast constantly but somehow you sort of expect it to happen naturally because that's the expectation but then it can be very challenging and i always say this if you can get in touch with a lactation consultant the lactation consultants know even more than the pediatrician in the hospital they know because they see mothers in and out doing this so they can actually be of great help so that you feel relieved that somebody is actually helping you and you're yeah. also trying a few different things before you sort of settle in and say okay yes this is something that I'd like to do I'd like to continue to breastfeed or should I be looking for other options yeah. but because of the emotional upheaval that we go through it becomes a bit more harder to sort of think clearly in that period and a lot of us are the children of parents that didn't breastfeed because in that time i was born in 1980 for example then that was the peak of the formula feeding mm. era mm. so you're not necessarily going to get support from the grandparents the grandmothers about breastfeeding depending on how you were fed when you were younger because they say well you're fine you don't have any allergies why don't you just use a bottle Yeah. But again it's like that biological thing in you that says no I have to be able to breastfeed oh, baby yeah. that's what I'm making milk for it's for them and I want the best for them. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, it's amazing because in my case it was the other way around because I always saw I was breastfed by my mother mm-hmm. and I always saw my mother breastfeed my brother who's 4 years younger than me for about 2 and a half years. So for me I prepared myself really well for labor and birth. but i thought breastfeeding would come naturally yeah and unfortunately no it's not right and also unfortunately when i was actually turning to my mother saying that could you help me could you help me and you know make me understand a bit better my poor mum she couldn't actually help me because it went so easy for her so she really didn't have any suggestions and i used to get really upset with her <laughs> it was the other way you know for me and i would be like but why then i started blaming myself saying that maybe something is wrong with me and i'm not able to breastfeed whereas no. my mom did you know it's it just starts the emotion starts playing on your mind and your body differently and then you're constantly in the stress zone when you're stressed the first thing that happens is that everything else is just your body is just not ready your mind is not ready you're not that you know you're not in the calm zen space to be able to connect or bond with the baby you're also looking at the next breastfeeding cycle as gosh i need to do this and i need to make this work it's also this 
I was working in the corporate at the time, there was that slight competitiveness <laughs> that would kick in. I was competing with myself to feed better, to be a better mother. You know, there was that, no. that cycle that I was going through in my mind saying that, but I need to do this. I'm supposed to be a good mother. Then why am I not able to do this? Am I not a good mother because I'm failing to breastfeed my daughter? You know, am I no. not doing the right thing? And different people, different stories, like even well-intentioned family and friends giving you some of these advices and you I just wanted to just run away from that place you know I didn't want to be there but I think your only point of reference is really honestly asking yourself how am I feeling is this journey making me depressed because exactly if you get really down you know they say happy mum happy baby and that is the only reference point because everybody has got some blimming advice for you absolutely even absolutely. my father-in-law Sorry, but like his kids were bottle fed and what does he know about breastfeeding? Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's like, yeah, um, yeah, you just don't want that. You know, you just don't want anybody to tell you that this is what it is. This is the best thing that you can do. But you as a mother, you're doing your very best. I always sort of say this when I work with parents now, it's always about look at the mother's mental health, look at how she feels and look at what she wants. Yeah. Is it helping? And um, there was another mother who was on my podcast and she sort of mentioned this. Apparently, one of her therapists said that, what would you say this? You know, what would you say to your best friend if your best friend is going through this? I would say, take care of yourself first. Yeah. Put yourself first. And she was like, if you would say this to your best friend, why wouldn't you say this to yourself? Makes so much sense. Because also, I think from a scientific perspective as well, that the baby gets a lot of antibodies from the mother from the yes. first breast milk. And yeah. normally they'll get some of that, right? Yes. So they get their kind of, let's call yeah. it vaccination at the yeah. first day or two. Exactly. Um, days, yeah. The breast milk is optimal for the child. So if you can give it to them, it's great. But think about the rest of their life as well every meal that you put on the table for them every thing that they consume over a much much longer period of time i mean there are other things that can impact their health as well yeah if you give them breast milk and then you give them chicken chicken nuggets and chips for the rest of their life they're also not going to be a strong and healthy sure. individual so um you will have I think sustainability in everything you know <laughs> Yeah, so, what is the sustainable route that you can actually take throughout your parenthood and how can you sort of transition and help your kids better I think that's probably the right way to look at it rather than sort of say this is exactly what I'm going to do because when I gave birth to my daughter she's going to be 16 this year at that time we didn't have so much of awareness about the different possibilities of say using breast pump to pumping and feeding the baby and then you know making sure that you know the mother is feeling a bit better it was either breastfeeding or bottle mm -hmm. you know there was just no transition like I was still struggling with um, with breastfeeding and latching on and I had introduced bottle to my daughter and my husband had to go to New York for four days. And the only reason I let him go to New York for four days was he could actually buy me a, a hand breast pump and hand. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it was just like, please, please pick up something for me. We didn't have one in the market in India at the time. Okay. You know? So wow. it was really hard. It was really hard to sort of transition at that point in time. And I'm glad that we are having these conversations now, simply because it's always about 
how can we help the mother better? I think mothering the mother, if you sort of help the mother feel a bit better because she is going through something intense, she's gone through something, such an intense raw experience and then the whole postpartum blues aspect of it and suddenly she's sleep deprived and taking care of the baby. I think we all have to be very, very understanding of what she must be going through and just be there for her to help and support her in whatever way she wants. Yeah. Whether she wants to breastfeed, whether she wants to formula feed, whether she wants to give donated milk, donor milk, doesn't matter. I think that's exactly how yeah. it should be. Yeah. 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 I'm going to ask you something because, you know, there were two things that sort of came up. One was parenting as a mother during the whole pandemic, because, you know, all of us are still sort of like coming out of the pandemic in a way. It's not fully gone. And I don't think, you know, it's ever going to completely leave the society. I think we're, we're all sort of trying to learn to live with the virus. How has it been for you in terms of going back and to sort of look at the last two, two and a half years? Because Mia was one year old, maybe, when mm-hmm. when the pandemic hit. How has it been for you with two small children at home and you're a researcher and you're a scientist? And how has it been for you to sort of, you know... Do- yeah, so now, now I'm working in the corporate world, but it's not necessarily um, any more relaxed, let's say. Sure. Um, but, and uh, when did you make that switch from being a researcher to the corporate world? After my PhD in 2016, so okay. uh, before okay. my second child was born. Okay. Partly because I was sure that I couldn't make the hours work with having a family. Some people manage it, but it's really tough, particularly in um, lab-based research where you need to be there with your biological samples that you have to sometimes go at the weekends and, and do things to sell yes. and stuff. So I just said, okay, it's a very competitive field. It's going to be six days a week if I want to make it to become wow. a great leader. I'm not going to manage this also with all the travel and stuff. Um, it, it's not for me at this point in time. So I switched, worked a couple of years, but with a lot of travel because I, initially I was a consultant, so traveling across the country more than internationally. Well, okay. um, but when Sophia was really small, I spent two weeks in the US for work. So this was all pretty demanding, but I'd kind of just come off the back of my PhD and felt like that was normal. Hmm. And um, so it was surrounded by other professionals doing the same kind of path. So it seemed like, okay, this is where everybody does. Um, I'm going to go ahead and do that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then Mia was born. When was the timing of this? Around that time, yeah, I was hired internally, so I was no longer a consultant. And then I transferred to work uh, closer to home, but then the pandemic hit. (laughs) Wow. So one month into my new job in a new location. So I started in February 2020, March 2020, everything shut down. Wow. Went into remote working. I'm a project manager, so it's all about people. So at the beginning, it was the novelty and we were in survival mode with the kids at home. And I was working in the mornings. So my company was being understanding. So I was working less hours. I was working from, say, eight or nine until, say, two. And then my husband would take over with his job. And his his boss is in the U.S., so he was working in the evenings. Hmm. But we did this for the first few months. And even after that period, we were completely exhausted because... Thankfully, at the beginning, neither, like Sophia was below the age of five, so we were not obliged to submit schoolwork. So that was a silver lining. So, but she didn't do anything because we were both working. So we were feeling really guilty because she watched so much TV because there was nothing else that we could 
do. We don't have any grandparents around. Or yeah, exactly. Any, it was not appropriate to send your kids to the grandparents at the beginning because you didn't know exactly. if they were going to get COVID from the kids and, you know, how that would go. And we weren't even comfortable having a babysitter in the first month. Of course. More for the babysitter's sake, you know. But uh, so we had the kids there and we were working basically all day because if we, when I'd finished at two, I would take on the childcare and then my husband would go and work and then it would go on and on. And he was only getting a few hours of sleep every night. Mm. The second uh, round of lockdown, I can't remember exactly how all of this went now, but there were two, there was a kind of break in the summer, I think. And then exactly. summer was a bit better. I think things sort of like opened up and then. They sort of said that, yeah, everything was going to be okay. And then two weeks later, we had the partial lockdown. And then after two weeks, another two weeks later, it was was a lockdown again. We were like, oh man, we're back again to square one. So then I'm uh, considered to be a key worker. So because I work in the pharmaceutical industry, so we make medicines and therefore we came in the list. Uh, And I decided that I would use the no-doc van. um, So the emergency care, because... Yeah. For our mental health, because we were completely stressed by the first experience. Sophia was also coming up to an age where she needed to do, she was like obligatory schoolwork age, I Hmm. think, Hmm. around that time. Hmm. But yeah, even so, the remote working continued. And any time one of the kids had anything like a fever or a runny nose, which when you've got a two-year-old, it's like every day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's uh, how it happened all the time. Yeah, They were at home. And my colleagues were understanding. And like, luckily, my manager's got two small kids. So one of my, um, the guys that reports to me has a, a, had a six-year-old at the time. So they got, my, they got it. They had similar issues. But I really felt pulled in all directions. The government says stay at home, your employer says keep working, your school says keep teaching, or I don't know. So you have to be everyone and everything at the same time. I've been talking with this about other mums who have been working from home with their kids. And it's really hard to explain why it's so hard, but it's just the fact that your persona that you have at work or something, your mentality, your whole thing that your professional sure person is gets interrupted yeah and there's this flip-flop between parent and professional and there's something about that that is really really exhausting and difficult to manage and I'm not a psychologist so I don't know what that is but it's 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 a sort of like you know there's a clear demarcation right if you're getting ready and going into work you know, mm-hmm. you are Neris and I, you know, maybe I'm Chitra or someone else. And then you sort of go in and then you have a certain professional personality. Yeah. And then you finish that and then you come back home and then you're a mother. And then, you know, yeah. you're, you're a partner. You can sort of relax and you can be yourself. And I think that was the one that was merging perhaps for a lot of parents. I think it was not merging is the problem. Yeah. So your, your brain um, doesn't adapt somehow to that. Yeah. And and just even like simply that you get interrupted. So you'll be making a point in a meeting and then a three-year-old will come in and ask you for juice. And you're like, oh, what was I saying? And people in the meeting were fine with it and would laugh. And I think uh, we have a, a colleague uh, who even sang a song for my daughter once. via oh, the that's so sweet. Um, yeah. But somewhere down the line, I even wrote to Human Resources and said, Look, I know the daycares are now open, but they have these strict rules in place. So as soon as there's a drop of snot coming out of the nose, then they should stay at home. 
So I've got my daughter at home 25% of the time. If I look at the calendar for the daycare, I'm cancelling days here, there and everywhere because she's, you know, she's hmm. two or three or whatever she was. She's, sure. she's sick, sick all the time, like not really sick, but she's got something. And I, you know, I can't send her. What do you want me to do about this? You know, how do I manage? Do we have some special yeah. leave now? Because some businesses have uh, got this corona leave first as an option. But we didn't have that. Wow. It was more like on an understanding with your management, they said. Mm. Mm. But I don't know what my manager was supposed to say because from a business perspective, I was allocated to a project that was running and no one was going to say to me, hey, you know what, Neris, just only do half your tasks from now on. Yeah. So they were still expecting work to be done. And then, yeah, it just sort of feels like, you know, it was business as usual, but you're doing yeah. everything, you know. You and for some people, it more or less was, except that they were working from home. So they didn't have any kids or their wife was looking after their kids or the kids are grown up or whatever. But, you know, there was a lot of different situations. And mine was in a minority, for sure. Right. Managing two small kids at home. And, so, yeah. At a certain point, I felt really abandoned. Not, I wasn't really, I mean, I don't know what businesses were supposed to do, right? Because it's, we're living in a corporate capitalist setting. So they can't just sort of go around acting like charities and letting people uh, not do their jobs. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, no, that's understanding. That's the understanding that needs to sort of, you know, come into play between the managers and the team members. But I would expect the corporate to come up with some sort of a law or some sort of a rule by just saying that can we just make some leeway and say give them extra days off or do something especially for parents with small kids because we understand that you're going through something intense at this point in time I mean I would I was in corporate human resources for years for the first mm -hmm. 10 years of my of my career and um this is probably something that I would have definitely recommended my team or my company to be able to do something like that because we always need to sort of look at the employees first mm -hmm. instead of project or instead of the clients outside internally. It doesn't matter. We have to look at what the employees are doing. And I feel like maybe we still haven't learned our lesson <laughs> even during the pandemic. And I think the corporate is sort of like still running along as though like, yeah, nothing is happening. As for the politicians, you know, it felt like they were always firefighting. And I think the businesses were kind of firefighting as well. as well because the goalposts kept moving. Hmm. Um, so you were not going to introduce a long term policy when you didn't know what was going to happen two weeks from now. So I can see it from their side as well. But I feel like I wonder what would have happened if we were in the 1950s and we didn't all have laptops. Gosh, Would we have just lost our jobs? Yeah, what we have stayed at home uh, and just relaxed for a long time and come back shaken up but fresher rather than yeah. what did happen, which is that we tried to be parents and teachers and workers in a combination. Yeah. Not good yeah. for anyone. It's not good. No. For, you know? No, no, not so at all. Not it's at all. been the most stressful period of my life to date, for sure, because mm. we don't have the family network. You know, I think later on you could call on your family, particularly once the vaccination started rolling out, if you had them available. But we still couldn't do that because we're abroad from our both from both sides of the family. Cool. Um, I mean, so it's also like you know, as much as we, um, you know, because we live abroad, as much as we always say that yeah, once the vaccination comes along, people can come visit and all of that. It's still 
you know, a lot of work. It's a lot of paperwork and then yeah. you have to do your PCR test and you have to make sure that, and there were quarantine rules if you're coming from different countries. And it was not certainly easy to make it work. It was not enticing enough to make it work as well, you know. Yeah, yeah you were always, uh, you know, in the back of your mind, you're like, I can invite my parents, but what if through doing that, they somehow catch COVID? COVID, you know? yeah. My yeah. parents are over 70 now. Yeah. So it's it would have been terrible if wrong. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You would feel guilty if something like that would happen. Sure. And, you know, you wouldn't want that as well. So, yeah, yeah, completely understandable. But, yeah. And I also saw that, with particularly with the earlier lockdowns because Sophia was watching so much TV I felt like she got kind of depressed and she was only five she she at some point she just didn't want to do anything at all she sort of lost looked like she'd lost interest it's the most saddest thing I've ever seen because five-year-olds you know what they're normally like yeah they're so energetic and they have to be like playing outside doing theatres doing music lessons swimming hanging out with friends doing play dates and that's also why um, we wanted to take the emergency care because we wanted her to socialize I saw her not in a good place and that's unbelievable with a small child you know you don't need I mean you don't have to like to keep a small child happy they only need the occasional play date and a box of sand and a bike or something I mean but she couldn't it was the lack of socializing I think I think so so. not seeing anybody else and feeling there's this this sense of like just being in cooped in your own house for such a long time can be quite impactful on a and the fear um, that she had as well about needing to wash her hands uh she's a child that likes rules or doesn't like breaking rules and uh <laughs> he was really panicked if she thought that she'd forgotten to wash her hands when she oh, got poor back thing. Oh, poor uh, thing. things like that and and yeah. the testing um she hated it uh, we mm. had to do it because of uh, quarantining from school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that also prevented us from traveling, really, because I was afraid that we would buy a flight and then she would refuse to be tested. Tested, yeah. And um, we would be stuck <laughs> somewhere <laughs> here or on the other side of the channel or whatever. So there's been many things that have made it really challenging for parents and other people in different ways but just from a parent's perspective I'm talking now uh, of course of course yeah. of course and where are you today how are you today because you know we sort of see that the Omicron wave is sort of settled down and the the government is asking all of us to sort of like to be a little bit more of course we still you know they still say you have to sort of maintain the distance and don't hug each other but keep washing your hands but things are sort of opening up a bit again so how are mm-hmm. you feeling about it today well, I guess I'm um, not holding my breath because I want to see whether we're really in the clear now or not. Mm. Um, I feel a little bit less afraid to catch COVID. I've been very lucky that we apparently never got COVID. I don't know how because our kids have been going out of the house the whole time. Fantastic. The same with our household. Yeah, the same with our household. I don't know how we dodged it. We've been Maybe we it. did and we don't know. But, yeah, um, yeah. I'm not, because I'm triple vaccinated and people around us are getting COVID and they're just getting like a cold. Mm. I don't have any pre-existing health conditions. Nobody in our house does. So in this sense, we're really lucky and I'm not too worried about it in terms of the danger to us anymore. Sure. Compared to at the beginning when you thought, I've no idea what I've got in my hands, really. Yeah. 
And uh, my parents are finally coming over on uh, in two weeks. Great! Oh Great. my goodness! Oh, fantastic! I'm going to cry when I see them. Oh, how long has it been since you've seen them, Neris? I was there uh, in February 2020, but I went on my own. I can't remember why. I just went for a weekend for some reason. Wow. And even then, I remember that I didn't take any drinks in the airport because there was talk about this virus. So I just had water with me and I didn't really want to use the cafe and things. and just tried right, to right, right. be hygienic. So there was it was already right at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. Thankfully, I went and I saw them, but then they haven't seen my kids for two years and obviously wow. transformed massively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only on the camera, but... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so happy for you. And I'm so glad that they're coming over. And I'm really glad that, you know, we had this conversation. And I like that, you know, we sort of covered everything, not only about birth and everything, but we sort of spoke about everything and also, you know, how pandemic sort of affecting, you know, um, yeah, families with, with small children. So, yeah, thank you very, very much. Thank you so much for taking your time and to be here and to share your experience. No problem. It was a pleasure. Thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners, for tuning into my podcast. I hope you found this episode informative. If you really like my podcast, then please do subscribe for more such episodes. Please feel free to share the podcast with your family and friends. And this will help others know that this podcast exists. Thank you once again and see you all next time.